Back here now, we'll get to study in God's Word. Uh, Luke chapter 21 will be our starting point. Luke chapter 21, and uh, there were notes sent out if you wanted to follow those along. Uh, I don't know, I know here the notes have uh, come out a lot differently than uh, used to. We, we get colorful things and all sorts of stuff happening here on, on the notes here, so... Do what you, you like with them and what, what helps you to remember and, and learn from God's word. As you're turning there to Luke chapter 21, um, we'll be in a number of scriptures as well, including Jude and Second Peter, but we'll start in uh, Luke 21. Uh, but as you are preparing and, and sitting there and, and looking there, uh, Wednesday evening, don't forget, we'll be uh, studying, and if you've got questions that pertain to what we've talked about this morning or about the second coming of Jesus Christ. We'll try and make sure we have some time to follow those through and, and answer those questions on Wednesday evening. And uh, as we start to get back into the normal things, uh, uh, we're going to be here at the home, so you're welcome to come and join us just here. We had a few here this Wednesday evening. And I did say last week you could sit on our couches, and then we didn't this week, but I'll make sure... You can try the new couches this week, <laughs> as we do. So if you want to come to the house, please come to the house, but we will still have it on on Zoom, so you can uh, involve yourself like that. Um, so we've all probably heard or seen that uh, rules and restrictions are starting to ease up now, and particularly on gatherings of people, so that will have a uh, an impact on how we can meet together. So I'll be in contact with the, the school again this week as things progress to see where where they're at and what's happening so that we can find out how we're going to progress, but I'll let you know that through the week to come. In these next couple of weeks, we should be able to start gathering back together and not having to do it all online again. So I'll keep you informed with what's happening with that in the uh, through this, this coming week, and we can plot our way back to, well, what we hope will be a, a, a normal for us. We're going to be in Luke chapter 21 this morning, and we're continuing this thought. So last week we took Luke 21, and we looked at the big overview of it, and we took in the whole scope of Luke 21 and gained some of the big big picture thoughts out of it. And so now this week we begin looking at details, so going from uh, bit by bit, working our way through it, and considering more of the truths more specifically as Jesus uh, brings those out for us. Uh, so here, Luke chapter 21, let's, by way of reminding us, let's uh, read through it here. We're going to read from, from verse 5, uh, and we'll read through verse 8 uh, this morning. It says, Then, as some spoke of the temple, how it was ordained with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be, and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you, do, that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near, therefore do not go after them. Let's have a word of prayer and ask God's blessing on his word. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we seek truth, we seek understanding, and we ask, dear God, that you would take those things 
Plant them deep in our hearts. You would help us to apply them, to live by your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Pardon me for a moment. Do you remember uh, you know, what we now refer to as 9-11? Maybe you remember where you were or, or how it, it happened in your mind. And we, we watched on live television these two great towers come crushing, crashing down and, and the devastation there. And then there were other places like the Pentagon, which was attacked and and other major targets, including the White House and other things which were supposed to be targets, but which were either foiled or, or didn't happen at the time. And those attacks did tremendous damage. I mean, we can remember it. It's still vivid in many of our minds from watching it, the, the great damage that it did and the, the massive loss of life that it brought. The, the, the impact was incredible. Or maybe you remember a year or so later when we had the attacks in Bali, which had a similar sort of impact here as we we watched the devastation that took place there in in Bali. And while the impact was was incredible and the loss of life was was horrible and and horrific and the damage beyond belief in, in many ways, what what we saw in those things was it wasn't so much what was was hit necessarily or or all the, the great tragedy, but the, the purpose behind where they chose to attack was symbolic, wasn't it? They chose to attack things and places like Bali for Australia and in the US, the, the trade centers and places of military and political power because of what they represented, what they symbolized. It was meant to be a strike at the heart of what was supposedly the strength and the courage of the West, symbolizing what we stood for and who we were. So when Jesus says here to these disciples that the temple is going to come crashing down, that there's not going to be anything left of it, it's going to be completely destroyed, this rocks them and brings up many questions because of what it symbolizes, because of the importance that this building had in Israel. It was the heart of Israel. It symbolized so much for them. It was the, the place of all their religious worship, and it was, it was uh, the, the heart of, of what a Jew was and what it was to be Israel. And it was a symbol of the coming reign of the Messiah and how he would make his kingdom and he would rule over his people. And so when Jesus says things like this temple is going to come crashing down and nothing is going to be left, that strikes at the heart of what they hoped for, what they longed for, what they thought was coming. So, of course, it brings up a whole bunch of questions about why this will happen and when it will happen and how it's all going to to play into the 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 truth or the, what they believed of the future. And so they ask these questions as we see in these verses and Jesus answers them to help them understand about the coming of his kingdom and his coming again so that they can understand the kingdom is not what they expected it to be. There was so much more to it that they needed 
to understand. And so he gives us these things. And we noted last week that as he talks about with the coming of the kingdom, what he gives us, and while we often talk of them as signs of his coming, we noted that the last days that he speaks of really are from the time he was there, the first time to when he comes back. And so what we're seeing here is not so much static signs as if this is going to happen and then it comes, but rather a character of these last days. What it's going to be like to live between the comings of Jesus Christ, from his first coming to his second. And he's given us a whole bunch of descriptions of what that will be like. And we want to look this morning at the first of what he says here about the characteristics that will dominate or that will be the nature of this age in which we live now, this age which we often call the church age or the age of grace, but which are indeed the last hours, the last days of God's program here on earth. And his first sign that he gives, the first characteristic he gives here in verse 8 is the rise of antichrists, the rise of false teachers. We talked a little bit about that last week. We want to look a little bit more here this week. He warned about people that would come in his name. He says, Take heed that you, will, that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near, therefore do not go after them. He's warned about people that will come in his name, but actually lead people away from him. So they say they are Jesus even, or say they believe in Jesus, but are in fact taking us an entirely different direction. Naturally, as the end draws near, the intensity of these signs will increase. As we look at false teachers, consider this, you know, the, the influence of false teachers in the time of Christ and the apostles there was in fact um, you know, quite large, but if you consider it, the, the false teacher's message was passed on by word of mouth or as they traveled. It was a slower pass around as these began to infiltrate into the churches and the people around, and that word of mouth passed to another one as people traveled around. And so it would spread through the world, but it would take longer to do that. As time would go on, we would have the writings which would pass around. And then we got books, and books could be passed around and sent around and printed out, which would contain these false teachings of these false teachers. And then, of course, as, as uh, technology progressed, we had recordings, and you could hand out uh, tapes and things like that that would go around. Or we would have uh, uh, TV which would come, and they could beam their things into our homes and, and videos. But now, now, every false teacher is no longer relying on word of mouth to pass it around or tapes or videos or people to watch their TV. Now, false teachers literally have immediate access to millions of people. You go on any of the social media sites, onto Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or any of those things that are on now, and you search up any of these false teachers and their ministries, they reach millions of people through their own accounts and their media accounts. So these false teachings now spread so rapidly, so quickly throughout the whole world. I'm certain you've heard of them. I'm certain you have heard the false teachings. I'm certain you have heard of these false teachers. They're too prevalent not to have heard them 
or known them. So this warning which Jesus gives, it isn't, it isn't just theory. It is not just applicable to some. But this, what Jesus tells us to be, to be warned, to be aware of false teachers, is something that we all need to take heart. We all need to hear and listen to. It is a very serious warning. So this morning, I want to be quite simple, really, in the way we do it. And, and I want us to help to find the easily, easy ways in which to identify false teachers, and then how not to be deceived by them. So we're going to look firstly at how to identify false teachers, and then secondly, how not to be deceived by them. And so we're going to jump around at a few places of Scripture today. Um, we're going to start here toward the end of the New Testament in a very little letter called Jude, right before Revelation. So it's the second last book of the New Testament, Jude, as we begin this idea of how to identify false teachers. Now, the Bible is full of warnings about false teachers from beginning to end. And the New Testament is full of them and how to deal with them and what they are and and how they look like. Jesus spoke of dealing with false teachers often while he was on earth. And so I took a lot of the main passages that, that speak of false teachers and I looked over them and I studied through them and I found that there are several common traits which come up over and over again in these passages. We're going to use Jude as our outline here, but we'll be referring to others to see how this all comes together because there are some common traits which come up over and over again in the New Testament about how to identify or the characteristics of false teachers. So there's going to be seven of them. We're going to quickly go through seven characteristics of false teachers and these will show us how to identify. There are, of course, more, but these are seven very common ones which we see come over and over again together through these. So we're going to be in Jude here uh, as we begin. Jude um, it's only got one chapter, so we're going to start in verse 4, and we'll read through verse 11, and then we'll take out what we've got. So Jude, verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. The angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example of suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. 
So let's take seven of these common things out. Say there are obviously more, but we're going to take seven of the common main things that we see about false teachers. And the first is this. False teachers mix truth and lie. They mix truth and lie. Our text that we began here as it talks about them says this. It says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed. They've crept in unnoticed. How do these false teachers, these antichrists, get a voice within the church, within churches? They get their voice with stealth, with secrecy. They don't announce their teaching heresy. If they came in and started running around and saying, look, I'm going to teach you something which is opposite to what Jesus said, opposite to what God wants and opposite to what the Bible says, it's not going to lead you to Jesus, it's going to lead you away from Jesus, we would very quickly see them and we would very quickly cast them out because we would know that's a false teacher. But these ones that come in and they get their prominence and they they get their things heard come in because they come in with stealth, with secrecy. They come in unnoticed. They do their work in secret. In another one of the main passages of the New Testament that speaks about false teachers, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says this, But they, there, were also fro- sorry, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They claim to love Jesus. They even say a lot of the right things. They use the right words, the right terminologies, and they they talk around things. But how are their lies not seen? Because they mix their lies in with the truth. A little bit of truth, a little bit of error, and it mixes in. What they say sounds right, and in part may even be right. But the subtle changes make a big difference in the end. Your small changes uh, in direction at the beginning don't seem to make much difference, but at the end makes a very large difference. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we are reminded of this important truth. In verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 11, it says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. That is, they will appear to be righteous. They will appear to be good, but appearances are not what they really are. That's why we must be on guard, because they are subtle and they are secretive in their lies. So the first characteristic of false teachers is that they mix truth and lie. They secretly do their wicked, wicked works. The second characteristic that we see here from Jude is that they live ungodly lives. They live ungodly lives. Our verse continues, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men. They are ungodly people. Look at their lives. 
Look at what their lives look at, how they live. What do they, what do they live like? What does their life show about the godness? Their life will show what they believe. Jesus told us the same thing. We've seen it in Luke when he talked about false teachers. Matthew, he repeats the same thing. In Matthew 7, verse 16 and verse 20, he tells us how to identify false teachers. He says, by their fruit, you will know them. That is, by what you see, the results of their life, the way they live, what comes out of a man, he says, in the same context, is what is inside. They live ungodly lives. They're only concerned with themselves. They are genuinely hypocrites. Now, none of us are perfect. And that uh, idea of being a hypocrite is often thrown at Christians. And and none of us are, are perfect, and we are all, in one way or another, a hypocrite because we're hiding something or keeping something from view as we try and pursue Christ more and more. But this is about a way of life. This is about the truth that they have no genuine desire for God. They only put on a facade of loving God, and we can see the result of their life. We see how they live. And the way they live is as ungodly people. So, firstly, they mix truth with a lie. Secondly, they live ungodly lives. Thirdly, they change the gospel. They change the gospel. Verse 4 continues, it says, Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. To lewdness, or, uh, or lewdness is to sensuality or to license, to this uh, empty, empty freedom, if you will, to just do whatever you want. That is, that the grace of God covers all sin, so you can live however you want. It's this freedom to just, just live according to your own desires with the belief that no matter how I live or what I do, God will forgive because he is gracious. This can be seen in extreme ways, but it can also be seen in very subtle ways. You know, that particular sin that, that I enjoy, that I keep feeding. And I keep pursuing it and keep doing it, uh, knowing or, or believing that, you know, if I keep doing it, I can ask forgiveness and God will forgive me and then it'll be fine. And then if I do it again, then God will forgive me and it's okay. It's treating the grace of God with disdain. As if it doesn't matter how I live, I'm just going to keep uh, uh, presuming upon God's grace. Paul addresses this type of living in Romans chapter 4. This idea that I can just live however I want. It's not true. Back in 2 Peter chapter 2, in verse 18, Peter says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh through lewdness. That is, they draw us away, they lure us by tempting us with our lusts and our desires. Love how he says, he says, the great swelling words of emptiness. They are eloquent, but they are empty. We've all seen them. We've all heard them. They're they're around everywhere. You can hear them. And they're they're great speakers. They're charismatic people in their uh, their, their nature. And they can can call us in and and keep us uh, attentive with their their words and the way they speak and how they can tell a story or draw us in. And they're, they're excellent and very eloquent communicators. 
But if you sit and think about what they're saying, you find that all of those words amounted to nothing. It was emptiness and nothingness. There is another side to this as well. It's not just the side of license that is where you can just do whatever you want. But there is another side to this. In another one of these New Testament passages that speaks of how false teachers will come in and influence people. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes to Timothy saying, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, at his appearance, at his appearing, and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth, be turned aside, but you be watchful in all things, enduring, uh, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Uh, or here in, see, where are we? Oops, that's right. Sorry, let me get my spot here. Okay. One of the other ways that we do it is not just the, the license, but also the binding of the law. They speak of adding restrictions, of adding things to us that you, you need to be married or you need to do this way or you need to have those things he will go on to describe in the last days. All these things which we could add to, so it's not just license, but it's also law in adding to the scriptures. You must do this and you can't do this. If you do, then you will lose your salvation. This idea finds its tentacles through so many parts of Christianity. So we have, they mix truth and lie. They live ungodly lives. They change the gospel. And fourthly, they deny Jesus is the only way. Our verse in Jude, Jude 4, continues, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter puts it this way when he says in verse 1, which we've read a couple of times, but he continues, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there were false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. These false teachers, they speak with what we now call these days nuance. They speak with nuance about other religions and about other gods. That is, they, they kind of tiptoe around things. And, and we, we don't say people are wrong because we don't want people to be offended. And we don't say that Jesus is the only way. And, and Buddha is not or Muhammad is not the right way, but only Jesus we might talk about Jesus, and they might talk about Jesus, but they never speak of him as being the only way, not without qualifiers, not without something else to go around. You know, some of the, the, the great, uh, most well-known um, of these false teachers around are, are excellent like that in the way they speak. Joel Osteen, who I call the smiling assassin, because he's got this great smile. He's always smiling, but he's smiling while he's sending people to hell. 
He is afraid and has been seen on many places on television and in his recordings, afraid to say that Jesus is the only way. The leader of Hillsong Church in New York, the same way, dances around the issues, never really saying Jesus is the only way. Any Christian leader who is afraid to clearly state that Jesus is the only way to heaven should be avoided and watched very carefully. Jesus said, in no uncertain terms, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The apostles told us the same thing. They preached throughout uh, the, the regions saying, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the gospel. This is Christianity, that Jesus is the only way. So these false teachers mix truth and lie. They live ungodly lives. They change the gospel. They deny that Jesus is the only way. Fifthly, they elevate experience above God's word. Verse 8 in Jude, we've skipped a few things. He's describing things and drawing things out a little bit more. But verse 8, he says, Likewise also these dreamers, which literally means they're relying on their dreams, these dreamers, that is, they place great emphasis on their dreams and their visions and their experiences. These things have more weight than the word of God. We hear it so often. You know, some make claims like, uh, you know, God told me this in my dream and it is true. And then some of them will even Qualify that and, and they'll, they'll add little statements like, always verify these with the Bible. But that's just a cop-out. They're putting more emphasis on their experience than they are on the Word of God. This also comes in many forms from people outright claiming God is speaking to them to simpler forms of, of subtleness like, I feel God leading me to tell you Beware of anyone who lowers the authority of the word of God in any way. God's word is our standard. It is our guide. It is our ultimate truth. Sixthly, they refuse accountability. Verse 8 continues, Likewise, all through these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority. They love verses like 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. And they'll say things like, I'm the pastor or I'm the leader of this ministry. I am the man of God. You can't call me into account. They believe they're above everyone else and God uses them uniquely, they believe. Second Peter, he says the same thing in chapter 2. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, they are presumptuous and self-willed. That is, they avoid scrutiny. 
They avoid places of accountability. If a leader can't tell you where they go to church and who their pastor is or who they are accountable to and how they have account over who they are and what they teach, they ought to be avoided. We are to be accountable for what we teach and what we say and how we live. The last one we'll look at this morning, number seven, is they love money. Verse 11 says, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. There's a, an account on Twitter and Instagram. I think it's called uh, Preachers and Sneakers. It started as a, a way of taking some of these famous preachers around and just looking at the shoes that they were wearing, particularly their, their sneakers, and showing how expensive they were. Some of the shoes these mega church pastors and these TV evangelists wearing uh, cost more than some people's weekly wages. The clothing they wear is outrageously expensive that they wear to supposedly share the word of God in. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3 reminds us of the same thing. He says, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Their love isn't for God. Their love is for themselves, for their own gain. We've seen it even in this pandemic as people have lost their jobs and, and lost their, their, their incomes and, and so much. And these evangelists have still been on TV. Send me your money and God will give you a blessing. They are lovers of money, not lovers of God. So let's finish. Those are some seven uh, characteristics of false teachers that we find clearly throughout the New Testament. Let's take a few moments just quickly here at the end to think about how not to be deceived by false teachers. How can I avoid being deceived by them? For this, we're going to take a few moments just in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and uh, verse 6 through, through 9 or verse 6 through 8 here, we will we'll look at. You see... With all of these things going on, this is why Jude begins his passage. In Jude 3, he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith. See, the reason Jude wrote all those things and the characteristics of false teachers, he says, the importance is you need to know why you need to fight for the faith. To fight for the faith. We're not told to ignore these false teachers, to just let them go about their business, ignore them and hope they'll go away. We are called over and over and over and over again through scripture to fight them, to expose them, to mark them so that they will not lead people to damnation. They are very literally sending people to hell. They send people to hell believing that they're going to go to heaven or believing that God is going to bless them, but they are leading them far astray. This is why it is so important. 
Avoiding deception begins, obviously, firstly, by knowing Jesus Christ as Savior. That's the only way I can know truth, to know uh, what is right and what is wrong and, and how they're leading me away, is firstly to know that Jesus Christ is my Savior. And having known Jesus Christ as Savior, my eyes open to the truth of who God is and what his word says, then I can begin to learn and grow and discover the truth of God. Once we're saved, we need to learn to be discerning. So how, now that I'm saved, how can I be discerning? How can I not be moved from the faith? How can I not be deceived by these who are coming in secretly, subtly to deceive? I have just three uh, quick things that we will look at here in this regard. And the first one is commit to godly people. Our text that I've asked you to turn to here, 1 Timothy chapter 4 And verse 6 says, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promised of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. So firstly, commit to godly people. He begins by saying to Timothy, who is the pastor at the church there, he says, instruct them in these things. Teach the truth of God's word. We need to commit ourselves to a church that faithfully teaches and pursues God's word. This is one of the the key things in keeping us there. Just as false teachers reject authority and reject accountability, by putting ourselves into a place of accountability where we all watch one another and we all watch how we're growing and watch what we're believing and we can hold one another to account and keep everybody in the right way, we need to make sure that the church is led by men teaching the truth of Scripture faithfully And boldly, we need to commit ourselves to churches where we hold each other accountable to God's word. If we know false teachers by their works, we will also know true teachers by their works and their life. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul again speaking of false teachers in the last days, but comparing them to the true teachers. So, but you have carefully followed my doctrine manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. That is, you've seen me. You've seen my life. You have watched me. And you've seen that my life and my teaching go together. We put ourselves in danger when we remove ourselves from the accountability of God's people. So how not to be deceived? Firstly, commit to godly people. Secondly, nourish your faith. Verse 6 continues of 1 Timothy 4, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Most importantly, we need to hold the Bible tightly. We need to be people of the Bible to know this book, to love this book. 
Like Paul says, just in, in 2 Timothy 2, we need to, to study it. We need to learn to rightly divide the word of truth. That is, what does it mean? It was said in Acts chapter 17 of the people in Berea that what made them noble, what made them stand out, was that when they heard Paul speak, they then went and they took the scriptures and they looked at the scriptures and said, is he telling us the truth? Does what he say, says match what it says in the scriptures. You need to believe the Bible over me. You need to believe the Bible over anyone. It is our ultimate authority. It means we must be nourished by the doctrine and the truth of the word of God. If you don't want to be deceived, know God's word, study it, learn it, live it. Peter says that false teachers are eloquent but empty. Don't be trapped by the great sounding words, the swelling words. Look beyond that. Be able to see the depth of the, reject the emptiness and pursue what feeds. So firstly, commit to godly people. Secondly, nourish your faith. Thirdly, and finally for this morning, pursue godliness. There are two things to remember here as we consider this. Paul says here in verse 7, But reject profane and old wise fables, and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godly exercise or but godliness is profitable for all things. Two things to remember. Seek God, not self. And seek God, not wealth. See, those two things, those are the two great traps that false teachers use to lure us away. Self and wealth. They promise us our desires. They promise us riches and prosperity. They try and speak to what we want, not what we need. So if we replace those things and if we stop pursuing myself and if we stop pursuing what I want and I start pursuing God, then their lures have no effect on us because that's not what I'm chasing. I'm not chasing my own gain. I'm not chasing my own wealth. 2 Peter 2 verse 18 says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. In 2 Timothy, Paul talks about how we get led astray by our itching ears. That is, we get led astray by listening to people who tell us what we want to hear, not what we need to hear. Verse Chapter 3 of verse uh, of 2 Timothy uh, Chapter 3 and verse 6 says that they use our own lust to lure us away. If we set our affections on God and pursue him, the lure of the false teachers loses its appeal. This teaching on false teachers, this isn't a sermon about we're the only ones that are right. We are reminded, though, that there are very very many antichrists in our world today. All over. 
everywhere, and they are very, very easy to find when we know what to look for. They are prominent, they are popular, they are vocal, and they are very well loved. You speak out on any of them in any form, and you will quickly find their followers attack you. Christianity is a learning and a growing life. We are to be people that are discerning and people that are defending the truth of the gospel that freed us. Cambridge Baptist Church, we aim to be a place of strength and protection. For that to be true, we must hold each other accountable to the truth of God's word. It is our rule of authority, our rule of truth. We are to be a people of the Bible, to study it, to love it, and to follow it above all else. People that pursue God and encourage each other to pursue God. In this world, we want to be a voice of truth. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, Paul gives Timothy a charge, uh, a mission, if you will, one of four, I think, through his letter there. It says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince Rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. We take this charge seriously because we want you to know salvation. We want you to know true freedom from sin. And we want you to love God with your whole life and to live for him and not be trapped in bondage. Look for the false teachers, stand against them and pursue God with all your heart. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us fair warning. You have told us and made known to us that there are going to be many in this world who will lead people away from you. Dear God, if there was anything more tragic, more horrible, I cannot think what it would be than to actually and even purposefully lead people away from true salvation. Help us, dear God, to be a beacon of truth in this world. To show people the right way to you, the way to salvation, and not to be deceived or tricked into leading people astray, but that we would be people who know you, who love you, who follow your word, and who encourage each other to do that. We pray, dear God, that through the testimony that we have by clinging to your truth and preaching the truth of the gospel, that you would bring many into your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.